from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Mona Roshan. Mona was raised in a Persian Baha'i family that immigrated to the United States in the early 1970s, before the revolution in Iran. She grew up in a small town outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Her professional career included working several years in the broadcasting industry as a television news reporter for an ABC affiliate in upstate New York. She shares with us her story of how being a Baha'i has shaped and defined both her professional and personal life. I started the interview by asking Mona where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I'm from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, um, which is outside of Philadelphia. Very small town growing up with uh, the old steel mills, one of the largest steel manufacturers in the country was in Bethlehem, Bethlehem Steel. Small community feel. You went to the grocery store. You knew your neighbors. Your neighbors knew you. My father was a practicing pediatrician in the town next to Bethlehem, Easton. We settled in that town in 1972 when my parents moved from Iran to, of all places, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. How did that happen? Why, why Bethlehem, Pennsylvania? So, yeah, I know. It's kind of a, so my father came to the United States in the 60s to do his residency and his fellowship. It was very popular for um, the medical students in Iran to come to the United States to do their training. Um, everybody knew that America was the land of opportunity, um, that they were just ahead of the game in many aspects. And so my father came here. And then when he moved back to Iran after he finished his fellowship, he uh, met my mother, they got married, they had my brother and I, and then my father was coaxed by one of his friends from medical school to move back to the United States and open a practice. So Easton became a, a place that he knew a couple of friends when he was living here. And so we ended up in eastern Pennsylvania and with a very small Baha'i community. My parents were two of the nine adults that made up the local spiritual assembly of the Baha'is of Bethlehem. So, And what's a local spiritual assembly? A local spiritual assembly in the Baha'i faith, uh, we have an administrative order. There are different levels to that order. Each, each city or town that you live in has at least nine adult members um, who are Baha'is, that makes up a local spiritual assembly. And then, of course, um, in every uh, country, there's a national spiritual assembly made up of nine artists in Chicago, here in the United States. And then we have uh, the Universal House of Justice, which is another level of our administrative order, the head of our administrative order, which is in Israel, Haifa, Israel. The local spiritual assembly is the, the, the group that makes up the members of the Baha'i community in your city or your town. Your father came to the United States 
before the Islamic Revolution? That's correct. So my um, father was here in the 60s and then went back to Iran and originally was going to move to Kenya and uh, be a, a pioneer at a pioneer post in Kenya and went to Kenya to actually look for a house and to look to find a place for my mom and uh, at that time to move to. He had to make a decision on whether he wanted to stay and go to Africa or come to the United States, and his friends did a pretty good job of convincing him to come to America. And so, yeah, they came before uh, the revolution, and we were very fortunate to have gotten out because some of my other family members were not so fortunate, and my aunt and uncle actually had to escape Iran in the later part of the 70s, early 80s, when the revolution started. So. Now, you mentioned pioneering. Could you explain to folks what that is? Sure. So there are different um, places in the world where uh, there are opportunities to teach the Baha'i faith. Uh, we don't proselytize in the Baha'i faith, but there are opportunities to tell people who, who we are and what we believe in. Of course, in, on the continent of Africa, there are many places that many people have not heard of many religions. So there was an opportunity for uh, my father to possibly go there as a pioneer to not only uh, practice his vocation as a physician, but also to teach the Baha'i faith. Now, you mentioned your aunt and uncle escaped Iran. Do you know the story behind yeah. that by any chance? In the, in the late 70s, when um, Khomeini took over um, in Iran, they were heavily persecuting the Baha'is at that time. The Baha'is of Iran had been told that it was probably best to leave Iran before this whole revolution started. They were told by the Universal House of Justice to basically to pack their bags and leave. Many people stayed. One of my family, my mom's sister, my aunt, her oldest sister, um, they were trying at the time to get out because what the government was doing was cracking down on all Baha'is, their businesses, any students that were in school, and really just uprooting and, and, and making a mess of everybody's, everybody's life and work over there. So by the time my aunt and uncle decided it was kind of late to get out of Iran without having to go through just getting out you know, with a, a passport and a visa. Basically, my uncle was a, a wealthy businessman, my aunt's husband, and at that time they had taken, he had several shops. They'd taken his, taken over his shops, his stores. Basically, my aunt and uncle had to pack what little they had left in their home that they put in one suitcase. They had to pay some of the guards at the, at the border to be able to escape through Pakistan and go through that route and be able to come, you know, in the middle of the night uh, with a suitcase with all their, you know, everything that they acquired over the years packed in a suitcase to come to try to get out of Iran and eventually they made their way to the United States. But their life was never the same when they came to the United States because they really had to start from scratch, and starting from scratch is for a 60-year-old 
man and a you know a fifty five year old sixty year old woman was not an easy task, so it was very difficult for them mm. uh, but they made it in the middle of the night in a like a the back of a truck you know underneath hiding underneath i don't know what it was grain or um some some sort of grain, and they were hidden underneath sacks of this grain to get across the border. Did you grow up in Bethlehem through high school? Yeah. So I grew up in Bethlehem. I went to a Moravian school. It's a denomination of Christianity. Mm. Uh, it was a private school. My brother and I were the only two Baha'is in the entire school. And we had chapel services every week. And they thought it would be nice that my father came come to the chapel and speak to the congregation and everybody, all the kids in the school, and any of the parents that wanted to attend to talk about the Baha'i faith and give the basics of the Baha'i faith, because many people at that time in my small town had never heard of the Baha'i faith. It was still in obscurity. This is the 70s. We're talking 70s and early 80s. And then I went to a public high school, and again, my brother and I were the only two Baha'i kids in the high school, with I had a graduating class of 500, so I was the only Baha'i in school. Um, but the people in my town, you know, amazingly enough, were very open to hearing about the Baha'i faith, and, and Bethlehem was really a Christian settled town. I mean, we had Presbyterians, Protestants, Catholics, Moravians, Quakers, many of the denominations of Christianity were in my hometown. But I never felt like people were not open to hearing about uh, my religion. And growing up in a house where, you know, both of my parents were also a minority religion in Iran, uh, you know, in a town also where there were only a few families of Baha'is, I still felt very um, loved and I felt that people were very understanding and very open to learning more about my family's faith. And what did you do after high school? So after high school, I went to the University of Pittsburgh. Go Panthers, friends, your <laughs> listeners that, that know the Big East. I went to Pitt. Um, I studied communication. I did college radio. I thought that someday I would do something in work for the media in some way. I, I did sports radio when I was in college. It was fun, a lot of fun. It's another steel town. I went from a steel town to a steel town. So, mm. of course, everybody knows Pittsburgh Steel was also one of the largest manufacturers of steel in the United States. So it was interesting. I went from one side of the state to the other, and both they were both steel towns. And then I graduated, and I worked in the Washington, D.C. area for a few years, and then decided, you know what, I really want to pursue this broadcasting thing. Decided to go back to school to get my master's degree and do an internship, and this time do an internship in television. And so I moved to San Diego. I did two years at San Diego State University and received my master's in communication while doing a television uh, internship in sports. So I got to do some really cool things. I, I, for all the fans that like baseball, I interviewed Tony Gwynn, uh, Hall of Famer Tony Gwynn. I got to interview, my gosh, Barry Bonds, Dusty Baker. I 
interviewed all the Chargers, Junior Seau for you football fans. Just I got to do a, a lot of different really neat things that at the time I didn't even realize, you know, I was doing such big things. I was just in grad school, and they would send me and tell me, Mona, go get this for tonight's story, and I would just go. I didn't even really realize how great what I was doing was at the time. It was just, you know, go down and cover the Padres, go down and cover the Chargers or the Aztecs. and So it was a really great two, two and a half years. And actually, the Padres clinched the national division when I was at uh, the TV station. It was the CBS affiliate at the time, and I got to be at that game where they clinched the national title, and it was pretty pretty crazy. I got to go in the locker room and and just interview all the players afterward. It was a special moment. So you fell into sports broadcasting in college. It seems yeah. that that sort yeah, of was I the leader it. into what you did in San Diego. Yeah, I actually I went into sports because I actually liked college football a lot. And I myself played sports when I was in high school. I was a varsity field hockey player. I'm a big skier. And I just always, I was always very athletic. And then when I got to college, Pitt had a great college football program. And I just thought, you know what, this is a great opportunity to cover some of the games, be on radio, start doing some of the broadcasting that I always wanted to do. And I just kind of fell into sports. And then I enjoyed the human interest side of doing the stories. So... I was more interested in the athlete and the story of where they came from. A lot of these players, you know, came from really nothing. And then all of a sudden they, they hit the college spotlight and there's something. And it's just, it's a fascinating story to follow from, from when they were playing Pop Warner to going into high school and playing high school and being the standout player in a town no one's ever heard of in Virginia or South Carolina or wherever in I was just fascinated by the human interest stories that were part of these athletes and these football players' story and coming in and playing at the college level. And then I actually didn't stay in sports, so I wanted to stay in sports, and I couldn't get a job because what I found was all the television stations, the local affiliates, the ABC and CBS and NBC affiliates, only had room for two or or three people at the most in their sports department. And I was interviewing, and they really liked what they saw, and they said, wow, your resume tapes great, but I couldn't get a job in sports, so I ended up doing the news. I was a general assignment news reporter, and that took me to upstate New York, near Syracuse, New York, where I work for an ABC affiliate. Now, what, what, what did you do in D.C.? So when I lived in D.C., before I moved out here, I worked at Nordstrom, I was in retail, I worked at a medical center, so So it was over the course of about three years before I went back to school. Okay. So I was just working kind of, you know, graduated from college, what am I going to do next type of thing. So you couldn't get into a communications job necessarily. Yeah. So I thought, well, I need to go back to school if I wanted to get an internship because none of the TV stations would take take you unless you were enrolled in school. And I thought, well, I don't want another bachelor's degree. Why not go for my master's? And if I decide to teach someday, at least I have my master's degree and I could teach maybe at a community college type of deal. So yeah. that's when I, I, I got in full swing with my internship at the TV station 
because I was I was in a master's program at San Diego State. If you had the opportunity to continue that after grad school, would you have taken it? The sports job, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, you know what? I like sports a lot, but I, I realized that I wouldn't be able to do the kind of stories that I wanted to do, mm. and I really didn't really do the kind of stories I wanted to do in the news department either. The funny thing is every time there was some sort of, they thought it was too fluffy, believe it or not, because, you know, it's always what bleeds leads. I mean, you hear that, but it's true. I mean, a lot of these TV stations, you know, whatever is the worst news of the day is the, the leader. And so I wanted to do the stories about people and the fun stories and the feel-good stories. And I actually, you know, many of the stories that I did, they wanted us to take a, a certain angle and kind of spin that angle to whatever was going on at the time to make it seem more, you know, juicy. And I, I wouldn't really actually do it. I would tell my news writing feel comfortable because I felt, I felt as a news reporter that I had to be unbiased, give the news, and report it the way it happened. And I couldn't spin it. I couldn't, couldn't do that. So oftentimes I ended up doing stories that, that I would approach my news director with. Funny enough, I came at the station up in upstate New York at a time right before, it was the year before September 11th happened. And there's the only active army base in the Northeast is in Watertown, New York, and I was working there. So when I first started, I asked my news director, can I do some of the military stories? And he's like, great, go ahead, Mona. We haven't had someone here that wanted to take ownership of that in years. Perfect. He was so excited that I was, you know, wanting and willing to do it. And I had established a great relationship with the public affairs office, so I started doing all these military stories, different stories, you know, what their missions were, you know, their training. Then September 11th happened. And really, we were all New York. It didn't matter if you were in Manhattan or upstate New York. We were all affected by, you know, it wasn't just New York. The whole nation was affected by September 11th. But because of the location of Fort Drum, the 10th Mountain Division, the military base there, they were the first to deploy units to Uzbekistan and Afghanistan. And I became the go-to reporter for all these stories that um, were happening because I had already taken ownership of Fort Drum. So they ended up sending me to Kosovo to cover the peacekeeping mission of the soldiers from the 10th Mountain Division. But, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do something like that, being in a small market like that, had I not taken ownership of doing these. And I was really doing a lot of, funny enough, human interest stories on base. So I, I really did all these stories that, People were interested in it because it was still upstate New York, but it wasn't the drug bust or the fire or the whatever, you know, that, those type of stories. So it was interesting because a lot of the things that I ended up doing as a reporter were a reflection of who I am as a Baha'i. And I, I say that only because for me, being a Baha'i is, it's not just my religion, it's my way of life. And I think that reporting the news and anything that I do, I really want to, you know, uphold this kind of ethical, moral grounding to really be responsible for being accurate and being ethical in, in my delivery of, at the time, the news. 
And I got to do that. I really feel like I was able to stay strong with that and let my news reporter know that that I really wanted to stay away from anything that I thought wasn't going to be accurate or fair. And I, I was really proud of being able to stick to that and be that way, you know. Was there a lot of resistance to that? When you're in the news, you know, I think that at the end of the day, they're always looking for, like I said, an angle. So you can have a story, but you have to have what's the angle of that story. And it's always kind of a twist of the truth. And it's not always 100% accurate. And like I said, you know, television was about ratings, still about ratings. I'm no longer in TV. I'm, I'm in pharmaceutical sales now, but it was always about the ratings. You know, a lot of times the stories that I would present at the meetings, you know, they were different blocks. So the A block is what you had, all the lead stories, and then your B block, which is after the commercial break, where you lose some of your viewers. I would often get stories that were put in the B block because my stories were, you know, an 85-year-old woman that had been living on an island uh, for close to 50 years commuting back and forth to go do all of her errands. The stories that I found fascinating, and I, I feel like others, other people liked, but it wasn't an A-block story. I found myself in the B-block a lot if it was a story that I was able to choose. Of course, I wasn't able to choose, always choose my stories. Right. So I was forced to be the lead on a lot of the stories yeah. at the station. Now, you went up to upstate New York after you got your master's degree at San Diego? Yeah. I graduated. I looked for a job in California. I went up the coast. I went into Oregon. Went that came back through inland. I went to probably I don't know twenty maybe station TV stations and interviewed with news directors. And every one of them said, "Sorry, we don't have a position for you in sports. What you might want to think about news." When I got back, I went back to my TV station here that I had been with for two years, and I said, "What's the deal, you guys? I can't get a job." And they said, "Mona." If you go in and you try for a news job, I guarantee you'll get it. But I planned a trip back east. I said, this is my last shot. I'd send my tape all over the United States. And I went, and the first place I interviewed, they said, we want to hire you. I was shocked because I had sent tapes for six months, had gone up down the coast, interviewed with 20 news directors. And the first place was Binghamton, New York, the Fox affiliate. And they said, we want to hire you. And I said, what? I couldn't believe it. I was, I, I thought, oh my gosh, the first place I come to in New York and I get the job right away. And then I interviewed in Watertown, New York after, and I really liked the news director. I liked him so much. I just felt like he was just a great man and they offered me the job and I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh my gosh, I have two offers <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't have any offers for months. So I ended up choosing the one in Watertown, New York, which turned out for me, I interviewed, I got to interview Hillary Clinton a half a dozen times, Governor Pataki, President Bush came to visit. I ended up doing stories that most reporters in the United States would have loved to have done, and I got to do them because of the location of where I was and because of being in New York and because September 11th happened. So I ended up doing things that most people, even in larger markets, even even in Los Angeles or New York or even these top markets, those reporters don't get to do. I, I got to do some of the most interesting, 
fascinating sit-down, one-on-one interviews with people that everybody knows who Hillary Clinton is. Can you tell me about your experience in Kosovo? It was a no-brainer. My my news director, when Public Affairs said we, we can take a couple people with us over there, they said, Mona, and no one contested it because I was always the one that was doing all the military stories. So they sent myself and a cameraman and nobody else except one of the uh, newspaper journalists came. But no one else from upstate New York was invited to go. And I got a chance to go. I was the, We were the only TV station from upstate New York that went. And we, we took this chartered flight over through Shannon, Ireland. And then from Shannon, we went to Macedonia. And then we took a bus from Macedonia to Kosovo. And for one week, I was to deliver live reports at night. So on the phone, I would be talking to the TV station. And then what the plan was, we were going to put together a half an hour special for all of the families and everybody in upstate New York on what their husbands, their wives, their sons, their daughters were doing in Kosovo. So every day, I was basically with a different group, a different unit of soldiers interviewing them, you know, on what they were doing. So I did a story on them keeping guard at the Serbian churches in Kosovo because of the conflict between the ethnic Albanians and the Serbians. Or I got to do a story about the drug smuggling that's going on or the extracurricular activities they had for the soldiers over there so that they could uh, keep a healthy peace of mind while they were away from their loved ones. So I was really fortunate because I came back and half an hour in television time, I'm sure you know because you do the radio, is to have a half-hour special and to get advertisers to agree to pay money for your show, you know, is a pretty big deal. So it was a whole special dedicated to the men and women serving overseas in Kosovo with the 10th Mountain Division Fort Drum. So it was really neat. I got to experience something that, I, like I said, I would never have experienced had I not chosen that TV station to work for and not gotten that opportunity to work there. So, and how long were you at the Watertown? Uh, Watertown, New so York. How... I was there for three years. So, I started uh, December 11th. I can't believe I remember the date. 2000, and I my last day was December 11th. 2003. So it was exactly three years to the day that I started. And then I I was fishing around for other jobs in television. I I got an offer at a bigger market. The way the TV works, you start in a small market, you go to a medium-sized market, and then you end up in a large market like a New York, a L.A., a Dallas, a Boston, Philadelphia. Those are big markets. And I got an offer in Syracuse, which is considered a medium-sized market, but I just I couldn't bring myself to live there for another sign a contract for another three years or so. It it was freezing. I mean, oh, yeah. we got blasted with the you know the lake effect snow. I, the one Good Morning America came up one winter. I was there because Watertown had gotten the most snow that winter of any other place in the United States. So I thought I can't do this. I really I was I had had enough and. You know, at that time, 
I thought, well, I'm really, you know, not making the kind of money that I need to make to sustain the kind of living that I want to have. And so people kept saying, come back to California, get into sales, come back to California. And so I made the decision to get out of TV and to go into sales. I don't know if I made the right decision, but yeah. I made the decision nevertheless. Yeah, so and now, now I'm in pharmaceutical sales. Now, how long has it been? So I've been in the pharmaceutical industry five years now. What I like about being in my industry is the indirect service that I have to humanity. And really, I was always looking to do something to be able to help. And I transferred recently from Orange County to San Diego, and I was placed into this territory where the patients are government-assisted patients. They're the lower economic, socioeconomic neighborhoods. It's really crazy because I ended up getting a, a territory that really is something where I feel like I'm actually serving the community by serving the doctors. From my Baha'i perspective, again, you know, to be of service to humanity is really what we all are striving for. And it's really something that, you know, the oneness of humanity is one of the fundamental teachings of Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. And service to all mankind is, is something that I think the Baha'is are really striving to do through their professional careers, through their work, in their personal lives, whether volunteering. And I don't think it's just the Baha'is. I think many people are working of all religions to serve mankind. So it's just a part of, we're all part of the bigger picture to help and, and be of assistance to each other. Can you give us some examples of how you're helping in the, in the work that you do? Sure. So, yeah, I, I, was, I was just telling a friend this the other day. I was thinking about um, the doctors are truly, to me, are these amazing people. I mean, they're really offering up their service to places that are impoverished and people who really don't have a lot. And they're giving, basically... It, it, giving of their time and their, you know, expertise and their their background. And when I first started calling on some of these offices, you know, I saw that there was a great need for a lot of these patients to um, be able to get their medications. They, they can't even afford co-payment. You know, if they needed medication, oftentimes a lot of these patients go without because they can't afford. So I've partnered with a lot of the offices. Um, we have a program at my company that helps and assists patients who don't have, they meet a certain criteria, they can receive their medications for free. So I've been working very closely with my offices and the office staff to ensure that people that need to get the medications that my company produces to get it at, at no cost to the patients. You know, funny enough, my territory now, I, I came down from Newport Beach and Huntington Beach, and I don't know if any of the listeners have been to California. That area is a very affluent area. People are driving the newest Mercedes, the newest Bentley, the newest Porsche. And, I, and I'm now in an area which is called the South Bay of San Diego where people are taking public transportation to work. Uh, they're taking buses. They're crossing the border from Mexico 
they're walking across the border, they're taking the trolley. I work in an area where there are a lot of Spanish speakers, a large Mexican population. Uh, it's amazing. People are, it, it takes them two, two and a half hours to get to work one way. They leave their house and their families that early in the morning to come to offices, oftentimes making minimum wage, but to come for a better life and have an opportunity here um, that they might not otherwise have somewhere else. So my doctors are amazing people. They all talk about their love of God, which is to me is incredible. All of my doctors have this really shining light around them, and they all talk about how they are serving. And they're all different faiths. They're Catholics, there are Protestants, there are Mormons, there are Jewish people, Muslims. But it's amazing how they are motivated in these areas to do their service. Again, as I said, the service to mankind being driven by their belief and their faith in God. And we, we have this camaraderie that, you know, I go into the offices and we talk about their patients and we talk about what I have and I bring to their office, but then we also talk about our mutual beliefs because mm. we are similar than we are different as human beings. And regardless of our religious background, we all have the basic needs, basic human needs. I, I feel very blessed to be in this new territory, as we call it, in sales. I often ask folks who were raised as Baha'is this question. In the Baha'i faith, there is this principle of the independent investigation of truth. And in the case of children who grow up in a Baha'i family, they're not necessarily expected to just follow the family tradition, but to independently investigate the Baha'i faith for themselves to see if it really is what they believe. And I'm wondering if there was a point in your life where you felt you had to take that step and take a look at... No, that's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question because I always ask people who become Baha'is, it's funny you say that, because I think, okay, I was born and raised in a Baha'i family, but I ask people who become Baha'is as adults, because I'm fascinated by how they come to find the Baha'i faith and then what they think of it compared to maybe what they were before. And one of the things that I've heard over and over again from people who have become Baha'i later in their life and were raised of other religions is that I've always heard that it's an extension of what they already believed. For me, growing up in a Baha'i family, I have to tell you that really it truly is the independent investigation of the truth. Now, my parents, of course, taught my brother and I the teachings of the Baha'i faith and the fundamental values and, you know, these types of things. But at some point, my parents sat my brother and I down and said, you choose to be a Baha'i. We are not telling you that you need to be a Baha'i. You, you make that choice. And you make the choice of whether or not this is what you believe in, or if you don't believe in, what is it that you believe in? And my parents were very good about presenting that to my brother and I. I never felt forced 
to be a Baha'i. I never felt that my family would disown me if I was not a Baha'i. I didn't feel like I would be excommunicated or in any way from anything in the of attending any kind of Baha'i meetings if my choice was otherwise. But honestly, I felt that by the time I was a teenager and could make a decision of whether or not I wanted to be a Baha'i, I really fundamentally believed in the principles of the Baha'i faith. So much of what I read on my own or what I heard at a conference or what I saw in front of me was everything that I had believed in as as a person. And I remember as a child, as a four- and five-year-old child, as that, that young, being in the back of my parents' car and wondering, what does this all mean? Why are we here? What's the purpose of life as a, as a child? And as I got older, I saw that being a Baha'i was very all-encompassing in the sense of Baha'u'llah says that to get to me, you have to recognize the messengers of the past, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha. And until you recognize the others, you will not be able to recognize me. And I've always seen religion as a, a progressive revelation. And so I did believe that Moses brought the Word of God. I did believe that Jesus. So when my parents said that this is your decision, for me, after really doing that investigation of what Mona as a, an individual believed, this was really what I believed. I feel very lucky because I never felt that if I was not a Baha'i and it was something else that I believed in, that my parents would say, we don't want anything to do with you. And I've had friends of other faiths who did not believe in what what they grew up in. And they had questions, and because they had questions, um, you know, the families didn't want really that much to do with them anymore. And I think that religion is something that every individual, whether whatever family you're born into, I think it, it, each individual has the right to search what the truth is to them and to find out what it is. Because we're all born into families that we come from different parts of the world, different ethnicities, different religions, and we really should be able to make the choice because to make a choice of what we believe in as for our religion is a very big choice. Um, and I use the word choice because in the end, I really think that in my family it was given to me and presented to me as a choice. And, you know, now I'm I'm in my late 30s and you know, I've studied other religions, and like I said, there are many things that I believe in that are part of all faiths. So, yeah, I, I really did investigate what I thought was the truth for me. And you said that you, you saw religion as progressive revelation. Could you explain to folks what that means to you? Sure. As Baha'is, we believe that God sends divine messengers to humanity at different stages in the world and at different times. And so God sent Moses and Jesus 2,000 years ago to bring the, the Word of God for all people. And as the world changed, God sent other divine messengers as well. I gave the example Krishna or Buddha or, or Muhammad. But Baha'is believe that the Bab and Baha'u'llah were sent as the latest of God's divine messengers to bring the Word of God 
as an extension of the Word of God from the past. So when I say progressive revelation, it's that each of these divine ones had a truth, and the truth they brought was for the world, and that Baha'u'llah has now brought a message for the world for now. So the religion is only about 150 years old, so it's a, a newer religion. But Baha'u'llah says, I was not the first, nor will I be the last of God's divine messengers. And that's something I, I really believe. I think that as the world changes and as humanity matures and grows, God never leaves his people alone. So there will be another divine messenger at a, another given time when there's a necessity for it. Now I have one last question for you. Is there something you still want to do that you haven't done yet? Yes, I will tell you that one of the things on my list is to volunteer more, and that is something that I definitely want to do. You know, I heard one time, a long time ago, somebody said, you can never be down and out when you have an attitude of gratitude. You know, volunteering helps you realize how fortunate and lucky you are, and the the times that I've done it, I've been humbled being able to do that. So volunteering more, finding time. I know everybody's always pressed for time, but making time like you do to work out, like you do for anything else, but volunteering myself, that's something I'd like to do more. But Warren, can I read one thing that I want to I end about, something that's very, to me, sums up why I'm a Baha'i? Yes, please. Thank you. Okay. And it comes from the vision of race unity, a statement that was put out by the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the United States in 1991, and it says, The oneness of humanity is the pivot round which revolve all the teachings of the Baha'i faith. It is at once a statement of and an assertion of the ultimate goal of human experience on the planet. More than a century ago, Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, wrote, quote, The well-being of mankind, its peace and its security, are unattainable unless and until its unity is firmly established. It is a principle that issues naturally from the genesis and purpose of human existence. The Word of God, as presented in the Baha'i writings, offers compelling insights, as in the following example. Veiled in my immemorial being and in the ancient attorney of my essence, I knew my love for thee. Therefore, I created thee, having grained on thee mine image and revealed to thee my beauty. And what does that mean for you, Mona? In the end, it is about loving all people. It's about being compassionate. It's about being kind. It's about all of these virtues that we get that come to us from God. And being a Baha'i, to me, means working towards the oneness of humanity and the service that we can provide, no matter what we do, professionally or personally. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you so much, Warren. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mona Roshan, a Baha'i who spent several years in the broadcasting industry in upstate New York before changing careers and now living in California. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.bahai.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time 
on a Baha'i perspective. Righteousness is weak and faints, and unrighteousness exalts in pride. Then my spirit arises on earth. For the salvation of those who are good, for the destruction of evil in men, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of righteousness, I come to this world. From age to age. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. of the religion of the Arabian and the overthrow of the kingdom of Iran and the degradation of the followers of my religion. A descendant of the Iranian kings will be raised up as a prophet. shall I be the last. In due time, another Buddha will arise in the world, a holy one, a supremely enlightened one, endowed with wisdom and conduct, auspicious, knowing the universe, an incomparable leader of men, a master of angels and mortals. He will reveal to you the same eternal truths which I have taught you. He will preach his religion, glorious at the goal, in the spirit and in the letter. He will proclaim a religious life, holy, perfect, and pure, such as I now proclaim. O Christ, returned in the glory of 
And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, God says, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. His light is like a niche in which is a lamp, the lamp encased in glass, the glass as it were a brilliant star, lit from a blessed tree, an olive, of neither the east nor of the west, whose oil is beginning to burst into light, though no fire has touched it. Light upon light, God guideth whomsoever he willeth to his light, and of all things God is knowing. Spirit of power 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.